This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. In order to interview Father Cyprian, I had to make a two and a half hour journey through Big Sur to the new Camaldoli Hermitage. And note, this is not normal driving. This is driving literally on the most western edge of the United States on Highway 1, where the highway is no longer one straight line, but sharp curves through the cliffs, such that you see the vast Pacific Ocean on your right, as your other eye is still on the road. It's spectacularly beautiful, and even if you've seen it before, it's still always jaw-droppingly beautiful every time you see it, and scary. It's a kind of road where when the sign tells you that the speed limit is 30 miles per hour on a curve, you better listen. They ain't kidding. Cars are known to drive off the cliff. As a passenger, it's impressive, shockingly beautiful, and overwhelming. And as a not-so-confident driver with some serious concerns, there's a component where you kind of feel fucked but excited. The last time I came here for an interview, which is episode two, where I talked with Father Monero about forgiveness, my friend was kind enough to drive me. And here I was making the drive by myself for the first time ever. I've not left my family for any kind of trip by myself for a while. It felt like emerging from the pandemic in a sense, really hesitant to leave at first, anxious and cautious, eventually to feel amazing. This interview was rescheduled three times. The first was totally legitimate. Due to the overwhelming amount of rains in a short period of time, there was a portion of the cliff highway through Big Sur that collapsed, so the alternate route would take over four hours to get there. The second time, my son William was at school, and crazy competitive sports addict that he is, he was playing basketball with a friend during a short break, dived for the ball, and fell on his head on the concrete without buffering his fall. As a doctor mom, I get really annoyed when he gets hurt, as I feel we should be aware of our risks and think about things before engaging. Like maybe, that's not the ball to go after if your hands are not ready. And I know that sometimes when he sees a ball, he gets kind of nutty, so I was annoyed by this fall. Anyway, he looked fine to me for most of the day, but the evening required an ER visit for his head concussion as he was developing nausea, so the interview was canceled once again. Father Cyprian was kind enough to offer a third time, as I was too embarrassed to ask. I had heard him speak at this year's remote Sangha Shantivanam, which is an interfaith peace vigil on New Year's Eve. And his words were so beautiful and encouraging for the hope of creating a new world through all of this a new heaven and a new earth. And hearing him sing also brought a tear to my eye. There is so much hope and beauty in his voice. It was also at this interfaith peace vigil where I had heard Rabbi Eli speak, who is on episode 16. There were many points driving down in the early evening because it was so breathtakingly beautiful. I just had to stop and get out of my car. And the first time I got out, I had no idea how cold and windy it was over there. You open your door and it swings open. You get outside and it's so cold and windy to literally have your breath taken away. The power of nature. 
It's amazing and kind of scary. In the early evening hours, there are almost no cars on Highway 1 in Big Sur, so you have that vista on steroids mostly to yourself. It's a place where it's easy to visualize how little we are compared to how massive the Earth is, and perhaps how important it is to make the relationship symbiotic. The timing was good for me, as I had been experiencing a period in my life of real doubt in my chosen path. I feel like I've emerged from it at least for now, and arriving there and driving through Big Sur was another moment for me when things felt okay. I felt my purpose, being in nature, and perhaps even supported. It was such a gift to see the beauty that is, to open our eyes and hearts, and to just feel it. And then I got to the cabin that I had rented in Big Sur for one night. Super cute and rustic on the outside. Even though I lived in Santa Cruz for over 10 years, there's still the bit of city slicker that still lives inside of me. I grew up in New York. I didn't know that people actually did activities in the woods until I moved out here. I was wondering why the cabin seemed sort of cheap for Big Sur. It's California pricing. Relatively cheaper, but all in all, really not cheap. I thought it was because of the twin bed. And this is more reason to read up on what you're getting for your money, folks. I didn't read the description for the room. When something looks rustic on the outside, it's rustic on the inside. The kind of place that has no Wi-Fi nor cell phone access. And I realized one of the reasons why it was cheaper, but not cheap, is because the bathroom is shared. Because it's such an old building, and perhaps people were much smaller back in the day, the bathroom was so small. The toilet was so close to the wall, I literally needed to sit sideways to get my whole ass fully on there. Otherwise, my knees would be touching the painted wood plank walls with the legitimate risk that I may not be able to get myself off the toilet. Having been in a porta potty the other day out of sheer desperation, and by the way, all women hate porta potties. There's a risk stratification that occurs in the mind of a woman when a woman uses the porta potty. You really have to go that badly to the point where your life almost depends on it. But I bring this up because there's more room between the toilet and the door in the portable bathroom than what was in this cabin. Sleeping was difficult as I couldn't relax with the little animal noises above me on the thin roof and I was risk stratifying every time I needed to use the bathroom. But you know what? The coffee and morning air was pretty beautiful when I checked myself out. But being outside again in Big Sur and driving to the Hermitage made me remember my purpose again, and it was invigorating. There were so many moments that I just wanted to sit and be still, and I can understand why the new Kamaldoli Hermitage exists in that location, which is so isolated. There's something so healing, awe-inspiring, and restorative to the beauty of nature. And I'm excited to welcome to the show Cyprian Concilio. Father Cyprian is a Kamaldolis Benedictine monk, musician, composer, author, and teacher. He has over a dozen recordings of his music and published three books, including Spirit, Soul, Body, Prayer in the Cave of the Heart, The Universal Call to Contemplation, and The God Who Gave You Birth, A Spirituality of Kenosis, and numerous articles. He has traveled extensively through the world, 
performing as well as studying and teaching. He currently serves as prior of New Kamaldoli Hermitage in Big Sur. Hello, Father Supreme Concilio. I'm so grateful to be here at the Hermitage with you. Welcome to Lost or Found. So glad to be able to welcome you finally. <laughs> Thank you. It only took three attempts. But uh, <laughs> and before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a Camaldolese monk. We're a small congregation within the Benedictine Confederation in the Catholic Church. I happen to be the prior of our community here in New Camaldoli and Big Sur right now. Also an ordained priest through the Roman Catholic tradition. Not all monks are ordained priests, but some of us go on to be ordained, especially those of us in leadership. I'm also a musician. Um, spent a good deal of my 20s and early 30s working uh, almost, yeah, pretty much full-time in music, studying, recording, performing, traveling. I've been able to pursue some of that also as a monk. And I'm also a bit of an author. I have four books out right now and written several other articles too, mainly on spirituality. I've had a great interest in interreligious dialogue for the past almost 30 years now. A lot of my work, both in music and writing and teaching, has been, uh, at least from a universal perspective, in the sense what different religions have to offer each other, what we can learn from each other. And also talking about some of the areas we differ, you know, and learning from each other in that way as well. So how do you feel about other religions, Father Cyprian? How do I feel about other religions? It depends on, of course, what other religion you're talking about. But in general, there was this great opening that happened in the Roman Catholic Church at this big event called the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s, where after hundreds of years of pretty much being closed in in a self-defensive and self-protective way, the church suddenly opened up to dialogue with the world. And part of that dialogue with the world included being in dialogue with other religions of the world instead of issuing condemnations and instead of pointing out always where they were wrong, where we thought we were right instead. There was a marvelous document put out called Nostra Etate. In Latin, that means our age in our age. And it talks about specifically about Islam, about Judaism, and about Hinduism and Buddhism of Asia as well, but it's opening up to other religions as well. To say that we, whatever good and true and holy is found in those other religions, we recognize them we support them, we even um, promote them, the good things that are found in other religions. And that's a fascinating, really almost 180-degree turnaround from the attitude of the church for hundreds of years before that. So I've been heavily influenced by that. And if any other questions come up, I lean back on that as the official teaching of the church. Mm -hmm. And it was said in more than one document in the Second Vatican Council, this idea of being open to other religions and respecting them and trying to find the common ground with them first. It's not to say that we're going to agree about everything, but you know this great canticle that comes out of the Gospel of Luke, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people of goodwill. 
it's really important to find people of goodwill <laughs> to, to be in solidarity with in this day and age, especially, especially when we're living cheek and jowl, you know, with, with other religions. So that'd be my, my first answer. So interesting. I just saw a, a video last night of somebody making some declarations about Islam. And I'm no expert on Islam, but I've studied it enough to know the, the, the five pillars of Islam, what the basic teachings of Islam are. And he didn't even touch those. He talked about you know, some other incidental areas about governance and about um, some aspects of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, himself, but didn't talk about any of the aspects of the religion itself. And I thought that was a culpable ignorance. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't talk about Islam if you actually don't know what the faith teaches. And the problem with that is, I've said this for quite a few years, especially in some of our own dealings with the Mideastern countries from America, why that ignorance is culpable is because if somebody says something uninformed on this side, somebody on the other side gets killed for it. So much of the violence comes from misunderstanding <laughs> two languages that do not understand each other whatsoever. So that's why I say it's culpable ignorance at this point. And if nothing else, I can lean back on the Roman Catholic tradition and say, even if most Catholics don't even know that we teach this, that's the official teaching of the church. We recognize, support, and promote whatever good we find in other religions. And we're encouraged to be in dialogue with other religions. Yeah. So certainly Pope Francis has been a great example of that. But uh, Pope John Paul II was as well, and Pope Benedict wasn't so bad at it himself. It wasn't mm. in the forefront with him as, as, much, as much as it was with, with Pope John Paul and is with Pope Francis, but it was still there. And Father Cyprian, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think we really have to be careful with the untruths, because the untruths that spread with the way media is, it can have a huge effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I've only just recently um, engaged in the tiniest bit of social media. Mm -hmm. We have a Facebook page through uh, through the Hermitage that's you almost can't survive in business without it. And I have kind of a ghost account where I just watch things going by. But I, I finally understand what people mean about the echo chamber also mm -hmm. of social media. You can block out anybody who doesn't agree with you, and you can hear from all your friends who do agree with you. And how do you check those facts? How do you check what they're saying? If they're right, you're getting an opinion. Are you really getting the facts? It takes so much. Mm -hmm. Just right now, the situation going on in, in Israel and Palestine, it's so complicated, but it goes back at least a thousand years, what we're talking about. But certainly, if you don't understand what happened in the early part of the 20th century with, with the Zionist movement, with uh, the English coming in, if you don't understand that, you don't you don't get the whole picture. You can't just make a, a blanket statement about things. You know? no, no, I absolutely agree. <clears throat> Do you think with like uh, interfaiths and different religions, we're searching for similar truths? Well, certainly that's my enterprise, looking mm -hmm. for for similar truths. There's a, a theory called the perennial philosophy. There was a book made uh, very popular by uh, Aldous Huxley, the philosopher in the 20, early 20th century, called that perennial philosophy. He got the term from um, 
a German rationalist philosopher named uh, Leibniz. The idea is that there is like, as we say in the Catholic Church, a deposit of faith. We would say like a deposit of wisdom that the great spiritual traditions of the world share, that we can share with each other. And so we can actually learn from each other in certain ways. Now, there's a whole lot of nuance to that argument. It's not just to say you can just cherry pick a line from here and a line from there. Mm -hmm. But we really do have things to offer each other. And in some way, and this may sound like a controversial point, but I can back it up uh, if you had lots more time. <laughs> the fact that even the Catholic Church insists that the fullness of truth word the verb we use is subsists in the catholic faith it's not to say that we catholics actually understand all that truth that's there you know mm -hmm. we're still learning aspects about god just to claim that we understand everything about the divine is such arrogance you know and the biggest example i always use is i didn't learn about silence of god and what we call in our terms the apophatic tradition of God, which means the, the via negativa, the dark way of knowing God. Pope Benedict describes it as sometimes you only know about God by saying no. Like the no, God is really not this and not that. God mm -hmm. is beyond all our metaphors, all our images. God is beyond, beyond that in, 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 a, in a holy darkness, not an evil darkness. Well, I didn't learn about that in Catholic grade school. I learned about that from Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I learned about that from Hinduism and then came back and recovered it in my own tradition. And I would say 95% of Catholics have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about this, but it's actually a very noble part of our own tradition that never got uncovered. So that's something I found out about my own tradition by coming into another tradition. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you feel like in our education, perhaps, like fear is defined a lot and then there there develops the fear of God or what fear or what God would think of us? I suppose. Yeah. And I've come to believe, and I'm getting this mostly from like transpersonal psychology, mm -hmm. that we as a race, human race, our individual cultures, our communities, and even we individuals all go through a very necessary growth in our understanding about absolute reality. And I'm using that a broad term for us, for theists, of course, it means God. We grow in our understanding of God in the categories that I remember the most. We all start out with kind of a magical view, you know, <laughs> where we're God is like the Wizard of Oz, and I'm like Harry Potter, you know, I can control the universe. And if I just say all the right words, I can get God to do whatever I want God to do. And then we move into a more mythical view of God, whereas if we just believe the right stories and say the right languages, it always got to have the same words for us. And then at some point, we move into the rational stage. And some people never make it out of that without being just turned off and bitter, because mm -hmm. we, just, we realize that there actually is no Santa Claus you know, and the tooth fairy didn't actually leave the, the money under the pillow. That could be hard because all of our childish, magical, mythical notions about God can kind of crumble at some at that point. We could turn our backs and just go to rationalism and to science and leave out all kinds of metaphysics at, at all. But if we can move past that stage, 
we come to a kind of a pluralistic view and realize that there are many different ways to look at the same reality, many different ways to describe it, and many different experiences of that. That can actually be kind of a dangerous phase too, because at that point it can be very relativistic. You just say, oh, it's all the same. You know, everybody's, everybody's truth is just as good as anybody else's, whether it's based in fact or not. And then, at least the suggestion that I heard, we move a stage beyond that. It's kind of an integral stage where suddenly we realize that all those stages have been very important. Even the magic and mythical and rational and pluralistic stages have been very important. We can bring it all together. But until we get up into those levels of maturity, we get very threatened by things. You know, yeah. We get very threatened by somebody challenging our understanding of absolute reality. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard in a scripture class that maybe the Israelites did not actually cross the Red Sea exactly like it says in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. I was so threatened <laughs> by that, you know, <laughs> not realizing that there are different levels of interpretation of scripture, you know, and that, that, that the Bible is not a history book. It's not a science book. <laughs> It's actually, it is telling things in a mythological way to let us know that God is really involved and God is really saving God's people. But not necessarily that everything happened exactly as written, as is written down in the scriptures. I was very threatened by that at one point. Now, I can recover all those stories now and talk about all those great myths mm -hmm. in, a, in a great way. I don't use the word myth in a negative way. A myth is trying to convey a truth in a different way <laughs> through poetry, through symbols, through symbolism. I don't mind talking about those stories, even in kind of a literal way at some point, including the resurrection of Jesus. I can go back to mm -hmm. the resurrection of Jesus and understand that in a whole new way now, realizing even the Gospels, we're not science books, we're not history books, but they're trying to convey that some amazing reality happened. This is the only language they had for it. The important message and the important, meaning. Yeah, what's the core of that? Mm -hmm. You know, for example, and this ties in a little bit with our theme of new heaven and a new earth, um, especially when I'm talking to non-Christians about the resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, I have no doubt that it actually happened. <laughs> but if people trip over the facts, if people trip over you know, the science of it, how exactly did it happen, mm -hmm. there's, they're going to miss the main point of the story. Mm -hmm. The main point of the story, to me, is that Jesus survived death. Death did not destroy the essential I of Jesus. And not only that, the story is trying to convey to us that even Jesus' body survived it in some amazing way. Transfigured, how do you want to call it? Transubstantiated, that's the word we use for Eucharist, this glorified body. There's a very important point there that somehow even the body is going to share in the glory, which means matter in general, which means creation in general is somehow sharing in the glory of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So don't trip over <laughs> the science of the resurrection and miss the, the good news. The good news is that not only do we survive death in some amazing way beyond our comprehension, but matter itself mm -hmm. shares in that glory of the, of the spiritual journey. Or maybe another way to say it also is life is much more than what you think it is. Yeah. Like when you talk about the silence of God, I think that's a very, very powerful statement because, you know, God seems more evidently there when things are good in your life. Yeah. 
But when things are not so great or where, you know, you have a sickness or you have a child dealing with addiction or yeah. someone's died in your life, yeah. you know, a lot of us feel like God has forsaken us. Yeah. But if there is a silence of God and God is always there, yeah, that's the ultimate truth that we're, we're missing, perhaps. It could be. And using that phrase, the silence of God, in two different but related ways. First of all, as soon as you said what you said, remember there's Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So even Jesus goes through that experience mm -hmm. of a kind of an abandonment in some sense, you know, of at least the God as God was understood up until that point. And then the great news of that is that suddenly in this some marvelous, mysterious, surprising way, he survives it, you know, and the church puts on the lips of Jesus uh, a phrase from Psalm 139 as the entrance uh, song for Easter Sunday morning. And when I awake, I'm still with you. Your right hand has held me fast. So even Jesus going through that experience, that there's something beyond human comprehension that happens even when we feel like we've been stripped of everything. And there's Jesus not only tortured physically, humiliated psychologically, emotionally, even this image of being, him being stripped naked in front of people and you know made fun of, but even like a spiritual darkness that he experiences on the cross, saying, my God, my God, where have you abandoned me? So that Jesus experiences that full thing of anything we could experience and the good news of it at the end of it, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is some kind of marvelous revitalization way beyond our comprehension. And that beyond our comprehension is actually the main point of the silence of God. The silence of God, for me, means two things in that regard. One is that what's interesting in the Gospels is it's not the first person of the Trinity who speaks. It's Jesus who speaks. The Father only says, listen to him. It's Jesus who's the mouthpiece of God. You know, a little bit different from the, mm -hmm. from the Jewish scriptures in that way. And part of what we draw from that is the first person of the Trinity. And just for the moment, I'm avoiding the word Father. and just saying the first person of the Trinity is that which is so far beyond our comprehension. <laughs> it's that mystery. And we could call it a darkness, but it's not an evil darkness. It's a holy darkness. It's a warm darkness beyond our images, beyond our, any thoughts our we words could have, and our descriptions. beyond our words mm -hmm. and our descriptions. If some Meister Eckhart would say something like this, and it almost got him in trouble, he would say, even to say God is light is kind of a lie, because mm -hmm. our concept of light is so limited compared to whatever God could be as light. To say God is love, to say God is life, all these things, we have such a limited concept even of life and love. It's, God is so far beyond that. That's the silence. The unlimited. The unlimited, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not even so much beyond words as it's before words. <laughs> it's before thoughts, before images. That's this great silence of God, that we can actually trust that mystery because what we've seen is that that dark, silent mystery, and we're kind of getting in the language of Taoism here. I don't know if you think about <laughs> Taoism. <laughs> that we know that it's benevolent mm -hmm. because it issues forth as creation because eventually it does lead us to 
in the Christian dispensation leads us to the fullness of divinity dwelling in Jesus bodily. So we can trust that silence, we can trust that mystery, and Jesus can actually lead us back to it too. Mind you, I think this is very mature faith we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You can't, I don't think you can start that way. People who are in the magical, mythical, and even in the rational yeah. are not necessarily going to be able to grasp a, a spirituality like this. But I think this is part of the spirituality that so many people are grasping and being attracted to when they study traditions such as Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, through yoga or through um, through through zazen or any of the mm-hmm. Buddhist practices. They're actually encountering that beautiful dark silence of God there. And sometimes it's like a heartbreaking truth to know that you were never abandoned, that you were never forsaken. Wow, beautifully put. That's that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Mm. May I ask you, Father Cyprian, as we're hopefully emerging from the pandemic, and there's like a known greater number of people with anxiety and depression, people mm. in crises right now. How do you live such an isolated life? Well, first of all, life may not be as isolated as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this place, you know, we're 14 monks and we're just as many staff. And most of the staff lives here. Plus we have our retreatants, which at this point we don't have too much in uh, commerce with. But this is a little village here, mm-hmm. you know. So we've been actually really blessed. We've had a, a, a little bubble of a village where we've been pretty protected. And Big Sur has had so few cases of, of the coronavirus, for instance, and nobody in our community at all has had it. So we've been kind of we've been kind of blessed in that way. At the same time, um, we have what's called oblates in our tradition, which are lay people who establish a bond of spiritual friendship with us. We have like over 800, I think, of, mm-hmm. of them um, who try to follow some form of our life, even in the world. And one of the things that we've been trying to convey to them during this period is, okay, this is what we've been training for. <laughs> This is what we've been forming you for, to be able to have your spirituality, in a sense, rather self-contained. Because our tradition does tend toward the contemplative and does tend toward solitude much more than other monastic traditions do. It tends toward a kind of, and I'm soft with this word, a kind of a self-reliance, because we spend so much time on our own. This is the, the skills we've been trying to inculcate, you know, in our own oblates and friends, how to be able to be with scripture and that be an adequate meal, you know, mm-hmm. even if you can't get to the Eucharistic table. The way of meditation, for instance, which quite often is a very much an individual path. And one of the things that I've already mentioned too, this idea of integral spirituality, how do you build a whole life that has grown out of your spirituality, you know, (laughs) not just how you say your prayers, but how do you take care of this whole spectrum of consciousness that is your soul, you know, Mm -hmm. your psychosexual, emotional health, your interpersonal relationships, how do you take care of that? And then also, and this- You mean to like really live the meaning that you hope for? To really live the meaning that you hope for, but also try to, strive for 
full health psychologically. Mm-hmm. In my understanding of these things, the soul, first of all, is a great spectrum of consciousness, all the way from the the senses and the rational mind up into the intuitive mind and the collective unconscious, this whole great spectrum of consciousness. When we talk about soul, we're talking about all of that, you know? So included in that also would be the arts and sciences and literature and languages and um, poetry and beauty, but also our, again, I always put those three together, psychosexual, emotional health, interpersonal relationships. This is all part of soul work. Mm-hmm. So to be able to be healthy psychologically, <laughs> to me, because psyche means soul. So psychology is really the study of the whole soul, this great spectrum of consciousness, to be able to be healthy there so that your soul can be an adequate vehicle. I understand the soul to be a vehicle between the body and the spirit. Added onto that, and this is something that, talk, that gets talked about so infrequently in Western Christianity especially, and I think you'll especially like this from your background in the medical field, to see our physicality as an integral part of our spiritual life. We tend to leave the body at the door when we walk into church Mm -hmm. and don't realize that all these, first of all, if Jesus really did rise from the dead with his body, then that means the body must not be a bad thing. But going back even farther, if we say, God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in what we call the incarnation. Well, the body must be a great thing, as opposed to many other traditions who talk about the body as dirty or the body as a mistake or they talk about the body as fallen. That, that's, it's, a whole different, uh, it's a whole different thing going on there. But the, the incarnation and the resurrection are telling us that the body is a wonderful thing. What we learned from some of these other integral traditions, and particularly I was influenced by the yoga tradition with this, is the body can either be your enemy or it can be your friend. So make it be your friend, you know. And this is a whole different view on asceticism, whereas asceticism at one time was maybe beating yourself or fasting yourself into, into oblivion in a very penitential kind of way. The root of asceticism is actually more like a training, not necessarily a punishing because it's bad, but it may be a kind of a tough love on the body to... Um, to train it. Yoga talks about training the senses, instilling the mind. So I eat healthily out of respect for my body. And that may be harder than fasting Mm -hmm. to consistently eat healthy. So I exercise every day so that I'm psychologically calmer. But also, I mean, the reason I learned to do the yoga asanas and stretching, I can sit in meditation longer and Mm -hmm. more comfortably. So now I'm making my body to be my friend and my instrument and, and, and the tool of my spiritual life. One of the great fathers of the church named Tertullian says, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. <laughs> it's not something just to be discarded off or to be despised. That's a misunderstanding of Christianity. Uh, yeah. Or even like the completeness of the body, you know? Mm. Like, I think, you know, learning to manage our external stressors in life is yeah, so important. Absolutely. But also addressing how you feel, what's inside. Yeah. And how closely that's going to be tied to your psychological health. Exactly. And, I mean, from my experience of life thus far, 
this boundary between body and soul. I, I can't see it. You know, <laughs> how much what I eat is going to affect my mood, how much my mood is going to affect how my body feels. The interplay. It, absolutely. Because actually the best of the Christian tradition would teach this too. We are not bodies with souls stuck inside of them. We are insouled flesh. The the Bible cannot imagine a body without a soul or a soul without a body. They're, they're not two different things. They're just mm -hmm. two different facets of a beautiful diamond. We're insouled, insouled bodies. We're incarnate souls. Yeah, and sometimes in our society, you know, I kind of wonder if people live on the surface a lot. They buy something nice, they wear it, mm. uh, but, you know, or we eat something good at that moment. But then I think sometimes we don't look inside enough or we address what's really going on inside. I think that's probably endemic in the human condition in general, you know, going back you know, thousands and thousands of years, but maybe exacerbated by the immediate availability of all kinds of outside stimulus. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard this saying once, if your kids are awake, they're online. Constantly being pulled out of ourselves, constantly being pulled to another stimulus and immediate gratification mm -hmm. that necessarily mitigates against turning the the gaze within there's a famous phrase from the kata upanishad from the um from the hindu tradition the self-existent lord pierced the senses to look outward and there we therefore we look outward and we do not see in, in sanskrit it's the antar atman we do not see the inner self and then it says, every now and then some wise people seeking immortality turn the gaze within. And when they do, they see. They see the antaratma, they see the inner self. Well, if we're constantly being pulled out, what effort it takes to turn that gaze back in. You know, it's much more attractive to go to the cotton candy. Yeah. What know? obviously looks pretty yeah. sometimes, right? Yeah. You know. It's distracting. Yeah. Well, and we also get addicted to it you know in 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 the strictest sense of what an addiction <laughs> means you know, mm -hmm. we're, at some point we lose our freedom because even our whole neurological self is so habituated to be pulled outside of ourself it takes a huge something to stop to stop that and i mean addiction strongly i mean people can get addicted to the computer screen they can get addicted to you know a tv screen they can get addicted because their body is so used to it mm -hmm. that they're not even choosing anymore, that we're not even choosing anymore. There's something, there's pain involved in not having that external stimulus. Yeah, and maybe if we keep on looking elsewhere, we can get lost in that elsewhere instead of really feeling like in our bodies to yeah. see the truth, hopefully. In our bodies and, and in our souls, yeah. Yeah. May I ask you, Father Cyprian, why do you think there is so much fear, anger, resentment, hatred, jealousy, anxiety in our world? <laughs> Again, I don't think this is anything new. It really is part of the human condition for some reason. And in some way, let me go back a step. In interreligious dialogue, and even in terms of this perennial philosophy about which I was speaking before, there are kind of two different approaches to religions. Some people will say that the main motivation for the religious traditions is dealing with a problem. 
the problem of death, the problem of evil, the problem of fear and resentment and anger. And religions are a way of trying to solve that problem. Other people will say that the authentic spiritual traditions are actually born from an experience of the divine or from an experience of union with the ultimate reality and the religious expression of that. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. <laughs> it may be a false dilemma to say that it's either one or either or of those things. But I'm going to speak from that first perspective now is to say, I think this is not a new problem, <laughs> the fear and the apprehension. It's just as exacerbated by the fact that we can have so much more knowledge of so many horrible things, you know, at, at an instant. At the same time, just think of the pain, suffering people had to face even 100, 200 years ago that we don't have to face in terms of how quickly we can get something to eat. Mm-hmm. I had appendicitis when I was in my late 20s. I would be dead if, if that had happened 150 years ago. Yeah. Uh, or just the simple thing like a rotten tooth, how people suffered from things like that in ways we have no comprehension of before, how people had to work so hard to provide heat for their, for their mm-hmm. homes, you know, and now all we have to do is flip a switch and we have light and we have heat and we have, you know, Twinkies. Mm-hmm. But even if it's something that's existed many, many lifetimes, it's mm. it's not right. What can we do to address that or let go of those emotions? Yeah. I suppose my first thought of that is what we can do for people who are experiencing those emotions. Um, this has been on my mind a lot, especially the past 20 years or so how important it is for us to build safe environments for people. Mm-hmm. In a sense, fear is a natural reaction, a natural emotion in human beings because we're made to survive. We're meant to survive. And when something looks like it's going to threaten our survival, it's, it's a natural thing for us to react against it. <laughs> so to get beyond that fear we have to feel a great sense of safety. And I'm not sure we can actually do that for Mm -hmm. ourselves. I think we have to do that for each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's really beautiful because after you said that, you know, I think these are very human emotions. Like Mm. we are capable of feeling this because Mm. we're human. And with these humanly emotions, I think if the environment is safe, that's how we can prevent ourselves from getting stuck in those emotions because a lot of people do and find a way out. And without dipping into psychology too much, which is not my area of expertise, so much of this comes from early childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned along the way that there are no monsters under my bed because my mom told me it was going to be okay. I learned along the way that home was a safe place where I wasn't going to get beaten, I wasn't going to get attacked. And if I got beat up out in the street, I could come home and, and there was someplace safe. Well, how many people don't have that? Yeah. You know, how many people don't grow up in a safe environment where they know there's someplace safe, where they're, they're not going to be attacked, that they're not going to be made fun of, that they're going to be fed, they're going to be cared for. If we don't have that basic building block, and this goes back to Eric Erickson, I suppose, if we don't have that basic building block, there's no way to get rid of that fear. Mm-hmm. We have to 
we have to be able to provide that, especially for our children. And, you know, people who work in the inner cities with youth, they will see kids at 9, 10, 11 years old already so deep in a self-protective persona, in a defensive persona. And I don't think those kids are culpable. Yeah. They didn't get the basic building block. But it's, like you say, you know, even if it doesn't happen in childhood from your parents, let's say, it can happen through another connection, through someone else that perhaps it's really never late. Yeah. We have to do that for each other. Whether all those wounds can ever be, you know, healed, I don't know, on this side of paradise. But I think we have to do that for each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a great (laughs) evangelical missionary work for people in religion to be involved in is building safe places. And again, people who work with at-risk youth or young people in their, even in their 20s and 30s who are in in the prison system already, they have to go backwards, you know, <laughs> and start start pretty far back to build a whole new, whole new level of trust. And that takes a long, long time. Yeah. And I think many of us, you know, we may be at different degrees, yeah. but many of us sometimes have to go backwards. Absolutely, absolutely. Know? Just in our, in our, in even a softer way, if not necessarily in terms of food and shelter and an absence of violence, you know, emotional support, <laughs> psychological support, self-worth. We don't just get that on our own. That gets no. given to us by, by somebody looking in our eyes or somebody holding a mirror up and telling us that we're good, telling us that we're enough, telling us that we can do it. We don't get that by mm-hmm. ourselves. One of my favorite scenes in the Gospels, and again, this is recorded in three out of the four Gospels, is Jesus' baptism. When he hears that voice over his head, you are my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. And you notice in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't go into the desert. Jesus doesn't embark on his life of ministry until he hears that voice. Mm. You know, He gets that from his Abba. He gets that from, yeah. from his parent. Um, we have to be able to give that to each other. Love is a safe place. Love is a safe place. Love is building a safe place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the action of love. Father Cyprian, what does the phrase a new heaven and a new earth mean to you? What it means to me, it's mentioned three times in the Bible. I'm kind of I'm kind of fond of this, this phrase. Once at the end of the very long book of the prophet Isaiah, once in the letter of St. Peter in the New Testament after the Gospels, and once right toward the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, Isaiah has God say, I will create a new heaven. I will create a new earth. Peter says, we await a new heaven. We await a new earth. It seems like he's quoting Isaiah, at least tangentially. And then in Revelation, we hear, I have seen the new heaven. I've seen the new earth. The former things are passing away. Something new is is happening. I was really influenced by a great scripture scholar named N.T. Wright. He's a retired professor and also a bishop. Um, considered by some people to be the greatest living scripture scholar. Um, Let me use a technical term here, telos, which means the end, the ultimate end of things. There's a a study of the teleology, the study of the ultimate end of things. And he says, I can almost quote this verbatim, but at least I've got the gist of it right, I'm sure. People are horribly mistaken when they think that the telos, the ultimate end of Christian life, is for the body to die and the soul to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. 
that that's actually misleading. He says, according to the scriptures, first of all, the telos of Christian life as he calls it, eschatological integration, meaning Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> His body was glorified. It wasn't just about the body dying and the soul going to heaven. But eschatological reintegration means even more than just me. In other words, it's not all about me, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> it's not just about me and my salvation, because three times in the Bible it says, a new heavens and a new earth. Like somehow this whole thing that we're a tiny, tiny infinitesimal little part of is about everything, about everything coming into right relationship with God. When Paul writes this chapter about death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, God will be all in all. <laughs> That's the telos of the spiritual journey from the Christian perspective. And Paul also says in the letter to the Romans, all creation is groaning and in agony while we work out this redemption of our bodies. All creation that was subject to futility is somehow going to share in this, what's, what's happening in the human person. This spiritual journey that we're making, the spiritual evolution that we're making, this transformation that we're supposed to undergo is somehow going to affect all of creation. <laughs> We've been set at the head of creation we're not doing a really good job of it, mind you, but we've been set as the head of creation. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, referred to us as the priest of creation. It's not to say we're better than anything, but that's been our, it's the job we're given. It's the ministry we've been given. And we're trying to work this out, and all creation is going to benefit from it, just like all creation is suffering because we haven't got it worked out. Mm -hmm. I think the really important word that you say is we. Oh, it's always we. All of us. And Everything. all of creation, yeah. yeah, yeah, essential. I think we've forgotten that message because a lot of us focus on just me, just you. <laughs> yeah, and without getting too loopy about it, there already is a unity there that we just don't recognize. Mm -hmm. Certainly a spiritual unity in the sense that we all come from the same source and are heading toward the same source. And without that breath of the divine in us, we wouldn't be alive. Mm -hmm. you know? Because God is being itself, and everything that shares in being mm -hmm. shares in the divine already. Yeah. The air that we all breathe Well, together. I was going to get to that in a second. <laughs> but thank you for that. Um, let's go to that side. Materially, materially, we are absolutely connected to each other. You know, I remember... Uh, 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 acquaintance of mine who's a wonderful holistic doctor, ardent Catholic, and a, a chiropractor, he said to me, just remember, if you can smell it, it's going into your bloodstream. Because whatever's in the air, <laughs> we take into our lungs, and the lungs mm -hmm. affect, as you know, this as an internalist, we, it becomes part of us. And the same thing applies to whatever we put in the ground, we're putting into our stomachs. <laughs> Whatever we put on our plates, we're putting into our bodies. And then our bodies go back to the earth. And whatever is <laughs> in our bodies is going back into the ground. It, it is all connected. This is a, an immense web of life, as the, as the um, native traditions would tell us. And we, we forget that to our peril. Whatever we're doing to the air, we're doing to our lungs, we're doing to our blood. Whatever we're doing to the ground, we're doing to our food, we're doing to our bodies. Oh, we are intimately connected. 
already. There's a unity there already. And without the trees, without and their without converting the trees, yeah. CO2 to O2, like we wouldn't be here without them. And whatever we're doing to the air in a, in, in America is affecting people, <laughs> you know, in Bangladesh yeah. and vice versa. What's going on in Brazil is, you know, affecting the whole world. I mean, I don't know how you cannot believe that at this point. But the real subtle one there is also in some way we are psychologically connected to soul connected. I was talking to a friend of mine who's from South Africa. This is back after the terrorist attacks in 2001. And I said, you just watch what's going to happen to America right now. And you could just feel the whole psyche of America be affected. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't. It was an individual thing at that point. It was a collective consciousness that happened. And you can feel that in a family. You can feel that in a community. I certainly feel it here in the monastery where there's something, there's a kind of a collective psyche as well as our individual psyches. We've, it's very soft science perhaps, but there's no doubt in my mind that there's such a thing as a collective soul and a collective mm -hmm. consciousness as well that gets affected. So we are already one. <laughs> Yeah, we are already one at every level. I think that's really interesting. And as we emerge from the pandemic, then yeah. I think life is redefined. This phrase is especially important: a new heavens and a new earth. And as you brought up that example, if we consider what happened after the, you know, two thousand one, you know, with the terrorist attacks, what would happen if we individually felt better? Yeah. And what influence we could have from within ourselves to outside and to others and our actions. And also, if there could be a, a gift that comes out of this very dark period, how much have we discovered our connection with the entire world at this point? You know, mm -hmm. this pandemic was no respecter of any culture in a sense. So physically, I mean, this thing spread all over the world psychologically we've all undergone the same trauma i mean in different levels apparently you know obviously in different cultures so the great gift of it could be realizing just how how connected this entire web of humanity is and the, and the planet is as well yeah it was unifying in a way as horrible as yeah. it was yeah. with it everyone experiencing anyway. it could be yeah yeah i was curious with a new heaven and a new earth why a new heaven <laughs> Do you know, I, uh, it's, it's funny you should ask that because I'm not exactly sure what it means either. <laughs> it's the promise of scripture. But I actually wrote a song about that using all three of those citations from Isaiah, from Peter and Revelation. And I ended it up with my own, my own words of it, mm -hmm. which was, you know, it's uh, first God says, I will create a new heaven. And then Peter says, we await a new heaven. And then Revelation says, I've seen the new heaven. And I end up by saying, dare to dream the new heaven. <laughs> dare to dream, dare to believe, be humble enough to believe that there's more to spiritual reality than we know. Mm -hmm. Maybe even heaven as we imagine it is not the ultimate end. Maybe there's something even beyond all that, that we, uh, beyond our concepts of that. So dare to dream the new heaven. And I put right after that, and work to build the new earth. That's beautiful. The ineffable. The ineffable, yeah. And be ready for the surprises. I mean, we're so arrogant thinking we've got it all figured out, you know. <laughs> Until we have like the rug pulled out underneath us yeah. and then we feel lost at that moment. Yeah, and 
you can imagine, you know, some of us, maybe myself included, at the point of death, we're going to find the ultimate reality. We're going to be a little disappointed. <laughs> we won't live up to our expectations. No, I think ultimately, I'm using that as a joke. Ultimately, we're just going to be surprised beyond our imaginations, you know, mm -hmm. the, the wonder that awaits us. You know, my kids are in parochial school since the pandemic. And one of the things that they were asked to study were the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh. And it's so beautiful. Wisdom, understanding to not be confused, uh, mm -hmm. counsel or the right judgment, uh, fortitude, which could also be known as courage, knowledge, mm -hmm. reverence, and the gift of wonder. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, I like those lists too. Um, one of my other favorite ones is the fruits of the Spirit in, in the letter to the Galatians. And somehow this also ties in with this idea of and the interreligious dialogue as well, and openness to things outside of the visible boundaries of the church. So Paul, first of all, is talking about the desires of the flesh and you know his horrible things of like impurity, licentiousness, sorcery, envy, drunkenness, quarrel, da, da, da. By contrast, he says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That means to me is anywhere I see those being manifested, anywhere I see those being manifested, I know the Holy Spirit's working. Mm -hmm. No matter who's showing genuine love, exuding real joy, being a peacemaker, being patient, kind, or generous, faithfulness, gentle, self-control, I know it's the Holy Spirit working, even if it's outside the visible boundaries of the church as I know it, and I can recognize it, and I ought to celebrate it as well. On the other hand, if those things are not operative in somebody, even if he or she calls themselves religious, saying, oh, you haven't got the spirit yet, though. <laughs> you might got religion, but you ain't got the spirit. Yeah. That's real proof that the Holy Spirit is working. Yeah. Because if that's not there, it's the lack of control, the last one, too, you know? Yeah. yeah. Why one and not the other? Yeah. Well, and when so much of our religious discourse in this day and age is characterized by bitterness and, and, and argument, you know. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that an ugly voice of Christianity quite often that's so bitter and so angry. And how many times St. Paul uses the word gentleness in his letters? Mm -hmm. And here you have, again, patience, kindness, and gentleness. If that's not there, then it's not the Spirit of Christ. It's not the Spirit of the risen Christ. Yeah. It's not the Holy Spirit working. Somehow that's got to be there. That doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. There's another phrase that St. Paul uses in the letter to the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. And there's two sides to that. Um, we have to tell the truth. If it's not true, it's not loving. If it's not true, then we just fall into some kind of codependence. So we have to tell the truth. 
But if it's not loving, somehow it's not true either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if those two things maybe are inseparable, it's almost like truth love, love truth. They always have to go together. When I think of those words, you know, um, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, if you really think about the meaning of those words, like it brings, it brings me down to my knees, you know. Mm. It's, it's so humbling it reaches your vulnerability or mm-hmm. the parts that you're even scared of inside, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps it's even curative. It's even curative. curative. Yeah, beautiful. What do you mean by that, curative? I think sometimes, you know, even for the areas where we don't understand, mm-hmm. if we shine that power into ourselves, what, what what can't be possible, yeah. you know, if you live in total truth? Yeah, and and also if we really live powered by a power greater than ourself, yeah. you know, that's inside of us. And maybe the truth is we need that, like you know, mm. that we're not alone, that there's an interconnectedness, that there's something beyond us. You know, and I think this is where alcoholics, drug addicts, and addicts of all sorts are have a step ahead of most people because addicts, in recovery anyway, are people who rec- recognize they need a power greater than themselves and that that power is actually available. Yeah. We all need that power greater than ourselves to move forward in our evolution of consciousness and otherwise. And that power is available to all of us because it's the, it's the ground of our own being. Oh my gosh, Father Cyprian, thank you so much for your time and this You're wonderful, welcome. powerful talk. Thank you. I'm really honored that Father Cyprian shared his song, New Heavens and the New Earth, with us. And we'll be ending the show today with his beautiful music. I will create a new heaven I will build a new earth The former things are fading away Something new is coming to birth Still the sound of your weeping No more need for distress See the ox and the wolf, the lion and lamb Raised together in peace We await a new heaven We await a new earth The former things are fading away Something new is coming to birth So then strive to be peaceful and give goodness its place. Salvation comes, so patiently wait and grow wisdom and grace. For I have seen the new heavens, I have seen the new earth, the former things fading away, something new. Heavens and a new earth 
wipe away every tear. No more mourning today. No pain, no grief, no reason to cry. Such things have passed away. Dare to dream a new heaven. Work to build a new earth. The former things are fading away. Something new is coming to birth. New heavens and a new earth. The former things are fading away. Something new is coming to birth. New heavens and a new earth. All my things are fading away. Something new is coming to birth. Heavens and a new earth. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found.